I remember reading that scene and just sort of dropping the book and saying, oh, wow, that's what it is to write. Welcome to Tales with the Sales, where we discuss stories that matter because you are living one. I'm your host, Jane DeSales. I'm a writer, poet, and storyteller. It is my pleasure to introduce you to authors as we explore how fiction impacts our lives and culture. My guest today is Eleanor Borg Nicholson. She writes fantastic fiction, including her novella, The Letters of Magdalene Montague from Chrism Press, and her gothic novels, A Bloody Habit from Ignatius Press, and Brother Wolf, available from Chrism Press. A former assistant executive editor for Dappled Things, she is assistant editor for the St. Austin Review, as well as the editor of several Ignatius critical editions of the classics. Her work has appeared in the National Catholic Register and Touchstone, as well as First Things and The Catholic Thing. The resident Victorian literature instructor at Homeschool Connections, Eleanor, with her husband, homeschools their five children. By night, she reads the Victorians, writes gothic novels, and cares for small children. Fun fact, she has an extremely low tolerance for scary books and movies. She's still petrified of the speckled band and won't sleep in a room where the bed is under a vent. I am so excited to bring us to a little cup of coffee with Eleanor Borg Nicholson. Eleanor, would you like to jump in and share some amazing literature with us? I would love to. Thank you so much. Well, I'm going to read to you from one of my favorite novels by one of my favorite novelists, Charles Dickens' Dombey and Son. I first read this book when I was about 13. I was in the throes of my early Dickensian passion, um, which has lasted my life. And a quick warning for those of you who don't love Dickens, I married a man who doesn't love Dickens. You can still be a worthwhile, lovable, valuable person and have absolutely no taste. So the scene I'm going to read to you from Dombey and Son, which was written, uh, serialized in 1846, the plot centers around a very proud, rich man, Mr. Dombey. He's the owner of a shipping firm. And the whole novel is about transforming him in from a heartless, vicious, unfeeling man uh, into something redeemable. And this particular scene is when he is pursuing the villainous Mr. Carker, who not only cheated him, but ran away with his wife. So Mr. Dombey's chasing down Mr. Carker, and we're seeing this from Mr. Carker's perspective. Uh, Mr. Carker is fleeing, and he is, um, well, at the present moment, he's completely devoid of sleep because he can't escape from the nightmare of being chased. He's also fixated upon trains because he's traveling by train. Trains are new, they're loud, they're big, they go fast, and in his sort of nightmare, alcohol, rattled condition. He's pretty darn terrified. So how long he sat drinking and brooding and being dragged in imagination hither and thither, no one could have told less correctly than he, but he knew that he had been sitting a long time by candlelight when he started up and listened 
in a sudden terror. For now, indeed, it was no fancy. The ground shook, the house rattled, the fierce, impetuous rush was in the air. He felt it come up and go darting by, and even when he had hurried to the window and saw what it was, he stood, shrinking from it, as if it were not safe to look. A curse upon the fiery devil, thundering along so smoothly, tracked through the distant valley by a glare of light and lurid smoke and gone. He felt as if he had been plucked out of its path and saved from being torn asunder. It made him shrink and shudder even now, when its faintest hum was hushed, and when the lines of iron road he could trace in the moonlight, running to a point, were as empty and as silent as a desert. Unable to rest and irresistibly attracted, or he thought so, to this road, he went out and lounged on the brink of it, marking the way the train had gone by the yet smoking cinders that were lying in its track. After a lounge of some half hour in the direction by which it had disappeared, he turned and walked the other way, still keeping to the brink of the road, past the inn garden, and a long way down, looking curiously at the bridges, signals, lamps, and wondering when another devil would come by. A trembling of the ground and a quick vibration in his ears, a distant shriek, a dull light advancing, quickly changed to two red eyes and a fierce fire, dropping glowing coals, an irresistible bearing on of a great roaring and dilating mass, a high wind and a rattle, another come and gone, and he holding to a gate as if to save himself. He waited for another and for another. He walked back to his former point and back again to that, and still, through the wearisome vision of his journey, looked for those approaching monsters. He loitered about the station, waiting until one should stay to call there, and when one did and was detached for water, he stood parallel with it, watching its heavy wheels and brazen front, and thinking what a cruel power and might it had. Ah, to see the great wheels slowly turning, and to think of being run down and crushed. Then he continues in his disordered sleeplessness, pacing and pacing and pacing, can't sleep, goes back out to the train platform. The air struck chill and comfortless as it breathed upon him. There was a heavy dew, and hot as he was, it made him shiver. After a glance at the place where he had walked last night, and at the signal lights burning feebly in the morning and bereft of their significance, he turned to where the sun was rising and beheld it in its glory as it broke upon the scene. So awful, so transcendent in its beauty, so divinely solemn. As he cast his faded eyes upon it, where it rose, tranquil and serene, unmoved by all the wrong and wickedness on which its beams had shone since the beginning of the world, who shall say that some weak sense of virtue upon earth and its reward in heaven did not manifest itself even to him? If ever he remembered sister or brother with a touch of tenderness and remorse, who shall say it was not then? He needed some such touch then. Death was on him. He was marked off from the living world and going down into his grave. He paid the money for his journey to the country place he had thought of and was walking to and fro alone, looking along the lines of iron across the valley in one direction and towards a dark bridge near at hand in the other. When, turning in his walk, where it was bounded by one end of the wooden stage on which he had paced upside, up and down, he saw the man from whom he had fled emerging from the door by which he himself had entered there, and their eyes met. In the quick unsteadiness of the surprise, he staggered and slipped onto the road below him. 
But recovering his feet immediately, he stepped back a pace or two upon that road to interpose some wider space between them and looked at his pursuer, breathing short and quick. He heard a shout, another, saw the face change from its vindictive passion to a faint sickness and terror, felt the earth tremble, knew in a moment that the rush was come, uttered a shriek, looked round, saw the red eyes bleared and dim in the daylight close upon him, was beaten down, caught up, and whirled away upon a jagged mill that spun him round and round and struck him limb from limb and licked his stream of life up with its fiery heat and cast his mutilated fragments in the air. When the traveler, who had been recognized, recovered from a swoon, he saw them bringing from a distance something covered that lay heavy and stiff upon a board between four men and saw that others drove away some dogs that sniffed upon the road and soaked his blood up with a train of ashes. Okay, that was one of my favorite scenes in this very beautiful book. Um, it really struck me uh, and speaks to probably my very weird fascination with, let's call it literary violence. Literary violence that has a redemptive point to it because here, not only is it the judgment of doom on Mr. Carker, but it's so vivid that moment when Mr. Dombey sees Mr. Carker and his vindictiveness, he doesn't change to become a redeemed man, but he pauses in his proud you know, seeking of this man whom he wants to kill because of what he's done to his pride, and he turns sick. So he becomes more human because he sees violence about to be wreaked on this man whom he hates. So anyway, and the mutilated fragments, I just, yes, I, nobody does, but very few people do violence like Dickens does so that it's vivid and it's just, just incredible, but not disturbing or gritty or graphic. It's just grotesque. Well, it communicates something to our senses without invading our imagination. Mm-hmm. I have never had a nightmare from reading something in Dickens and I'm very easily scared. True story. So I don't like to be disturbed. Dickens does not disturb me. So you said you read this around the age of 13. Is that correct? Yes. I was first introduced to Dickens at 11. I read Great Expectations and wrote a book report entitled Why This is the Worst Book Ever Written. And then it took my mother two years to read, <laughs> to read to read Dickens anymore. Um, and then I couldn't stop. Um, but yeah, no, I hated Great Expectations with every fiber of my 11-year-old being. But I got over it. And yes, Dickens and I are very, very close. Do you like Great Expectations now? I appreciate many things in it and find it very amusing. I, if I had to classify all Dickens novels, it would be in the second tier, in those I love. So there are some I love much more. I read Great Expectations and find it edifying, but for delight, I don't necessarily reach for it. Not first, anyway. Well, and I know I feel that way about some of my favorite authors, that there's some books that you could read over and over every year and mm -hmm. just cherish and relish, and other ones where you're like, I just don't want this one. That's actually how I feel. I really enjoy Jane Austen, but I cannot stand Emma. Oh, how interesting. Is it mostly, is it Emma herself? Is it just the character arcs? Is the lack of action? There isn't a lot of action in Emma. 
it's let's plan a party for four chapters. <laughs> um, I just I I can't stand her character. And so I haven't bothered to read it again because I just I'm I'm very much about character driven stories. And if I can't strongly sympathize with one of the main characters that's introduced nearish to the beginning of the story, then I have a hard time getting into it because I'm like, I don't care about these people. So it doesn't <laughs> matter what the plot has. <laughs> no, that's very that's true. That's true. I actually just taught great expectations to my students. And their biggest struggle was they didn't like Pip, which is understandable. So he's a very unheroic hero. So they, yeah, it's like at the end, I said, what is this plot about? And one of them said, it's about a boy who does nothing but has things happen to him and he never gets over his high school crush. And I thought, yeah, okay, I can see that. <laughs> Isn't that the interesting thing, though, is I'm sure, I mean, of Dickens's work, Great Expectations is one of the most famous mm -hmm. that everyone's heard of that one. And so that's one of the reasons I love talking to other readers and other writers and authors is you get to dig into all of these stories that aren't necessarily the most famous. Yes, yes. All these quotes that haven't been repeated over and over and over, but still made such an impact. No, that's that's very true. And when when you asked me to pick something, the other the other passage I considered was in Oliver Twist, also by Charles Dickens. There's a dramatic murder scene, which is very famous. Dickens read it out loud and uh, during one of his public readings or frequently during his public readings. And his biographers suggest that he hastened his early death because he put so much into those very, very intense performances. And I thought, oh, I could read aloud The Death of Nancy. Um, but then I thought, no, I'm going to go with the train scene because it really, I, those mutilated fragments just really had an impact on me um, at a young age. And I bet nobody's read it out loud in these interviews <laughs> because how many people read Dombey and Son? And so I, now I'm looking forward to it because that whole flavor of that time period just comes through in that. And it's just very evocative, the reading that you did for us. So how do you think that this quote, other than just being a nice example of how to handle literary violence, what else has this done for you as a person and you as a writer? It definitely, uh, this book and reading Dickens and reading the Victorian. I'm very, very uh, attached to the Victorians. Um, but just reading great works of literature, I became very interested in redemptive arcs, which I think is the heart of every story. I mean, even P.G. Woodhouse, there's a sense that we're recapturing the redemptive arc. We're going from uh, the primal trauma of the fall and we're moving towards redemption and eternal happiness. And if we don't make it, well, then it's a cautionary tale. And, you know, but if we make it, it's usually signified in a marriage and rehabilitation of broken characters. And that's that's where I see the violence functioning as well. I see it as part of that arc and wanting to redeem characters and caring deeply about characters and wanting them. I want Mr. Dombey. I don't like him, but I want him redeemed. And I want to understand why Mr. Carker, at least 
doesn't seem to be redeemed. I mean, ashes and mutilated fragments. Dickens isn't holding out a lot of hope here. He's he's very strong in his judgment and, as usual, is binding his judgment with the divine. It impacted me. It definitely impacted my prose as well. Um, although I think, uh, in my own defense, this is not an attack on Dickens. I had to learn restraint in adverbs and adjectives, and that's not Dickens's fault. That's totally my fault because words are so delicious. I want to use them all. I, I write more like a Victorian, I know, than a contemporary writer. I can't write in the tone of today. I also can't write in the scene of today. So I could write up to about 1930. I can't really write a reality beyond that. It just, my imagination breaks down. It feels too, I don't know, mundane and personal. I remember reading that scene and just sort of dropping the book and saying, oh, wow, that's what it is to write. Did you know at that point that you really wanted to write? Oh, definitely. Um, So my mother is a voracious reader. So reading was what we did all the time. As soon as I could, I was writing stories. They were very bad. So they're lost to the world. And that's a blessing. Um, If anyone ever figures out how to find, to retrieve old files from ancient computers, or if they find scribbled journals, it's not going to be like reading Jane Jane Austen's Juvenilia. It's just not. It's going to be painful and awkward. (laughs) (laughs) And poorly written. So no, I wanted, definitely wanted to write. I was writing, you know, six, seven, eight. I just, I always wrote. I find that if you read and read and read, you, you, you just sort of find yourself writing often and thinking in narrative form, you know, thinking in, even to, down to your own day, casting it, you know, I'm the omniscient narrator of my own life, which is sort of odd that I tend to write in first person narration, but there you have it. I don't know if I feel confident enough to do a Dickens and have an omniscient narrator. Maybe what it is, is because you're narrating your own life in the third person, maybe your characters are actually that third person that's narrating your life for you. That's possible. That's possible. Uh, that would be that would be alarming, given the kind of books I've been writing lately. <laughs> <laughs> well, but here's the thing is then they could look at your life and say, oh, how quaint and mundane. That's true. And you're like, yes, quaint and mundane is absolutely what my goal was for the day. Thanks. Well, and it's... Um, I don't need the high terror of an emergency room visit. No, no, that's true. That's true. It's funny, though, because in my most recent book, one of my cousins just read it. And I was so excited by many of her responses. But there were scenes where she'd say, I'm sorry, this character is you. And I'd say, well, a little bit of me. Okay, yes. All right. I did that. No, that's true. That it. But no, I'm really, no, that, that's not really me. Um, but I've also had to write myself out of out of books. In that particular book, I was working on a Brother Wolf while I was very pregnant on a certain pa- series of chapters. And then my brother read it and he went, okay, the character is not a million years pregnant, but you sure are. You've got to cut that angst out because it's just killing the character. <laughs> And I'm assuming this is more than likely the protagonist of Brother Wolf, Athena. Yes, yes. Because I have a hard time seeing some of the male religious as the angsty pregnant women. (laughs) 
<laughs> that is true. That is true. Although it's funny, I, I know beforehand we were talking about, or just a minute ago when you were talking about Emma, relating to characters or not relating to characters. Initially, Isabel was my narrator. And she was driving me nuts. I could I I couldn't write it. I couldn't write it. She was driving me nuts. It was just she was so obnoxious. She was a terrible narrator. So um, yeah, I fired her. Well, and that makes sense to me because, like, for our listeners, Isabel's character is rather cold and detached from the world, and it would be hard to create a voluptuous, delicious, sensorial story it not impossible but much harder when your narrator cuts off all of the evocative notions that are happening around her that would be really hard well and add to that that i wanted isabel to have or rather and i it makes it sound like i had control over this which i'm an author i don't isabel had she had inner torments inner things that she that had to emerge in tiny bits and gasps, you know, constrained by her, repressed by her. And if you have someone going around narrating and having these ill-repressed, angsty, it just gets really tedious um, and not interesting. It wasn't funny. I have to be able to laugh. Isabel was not funny. But it's the same reason why with my first book, first gothic novel, Bloody Habit, I had to have a narrator who was not the vampire slayer because my vampire slayers are matter of fact Dominican friars. They confect the Eucharist every day. The preternatural doesn't worry them. Well, but if they're not worried, my reader won't be worried either. So I need someone who's freaking out. Where's the tension? Exactly. Exactly. That makes good sense to me. And I haven't had the opportunity to read Bloody Habit, but... I can tell you that it got glowing reviews from one of my friends who is incredibly well-read and has a master's in theology. So, you know, she just was ecstatic over it and called me to tell me about it before she even knew that I was going to be interviewing you. She's like, oh, you have to read this book. She was very excited. And, and that's the thing is, the voice comes through so clearly. I, I, I'll say it again. I read Brother Wolf and it was a delicious book. The voice, the language, the story, the characters. And it was so vividly imagined that it reminded me when I've been describing it to people. And I hope that you like this analogy that I made. I likened it to the movie The Mummy with Brendan Fraser. I love that movie. That movie is so hilarious. But it's got this adventurous romp. It's got a smattering of romantic tension, lots of the spicy kind of dangerous monster type ideas in this backdrop of place and time that just immediately transports us. And so that's that's how I saw your book is not a literary form of that, but that same brain flavor, shall I say? No, that's very flattering. Uh, very flattering. A great, a great analogy. And I think um, literary romp, preternatural adventure, it's uh, probably closer to uh, the thrillers of Agatha Christie, which I've been on a re-embracing Agatha Christie uh, streak right now, mostly because I had a baby this summer. So when I have a baby, I read murder mysteries. 
it's what soothes me um but you know so uh same reason i love dracula it's the same i it's that mixture of i hope depth but also just fun and here's my confession i have not read dracula i haven't and I started reading Frankenstein and I got through the introduction that talked about Mary Shelley and I'm like, and I got through the first couple of pages. I'm like, I don't want to read this. <laughs> so I'm a horrible person. No, um, I, the thing with, as far as some literature goes, the thing about the thing about Frankenstein is it's such, it's a fascinating novel. I wouldn't say it's fun though. If when I get to heaven, you know, we hope and pray, uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley, Mary Shelley's husband, is there, I will rejoice. And then I'm going to kick him in the shins really hard because I can't stand him. And I feel like he needs to kick in the shins. Dracula is very different. Dracula is an outrageous story told by um, this Irishman. You get this feeling that Bram Stoker who was, uh, his day job was he was the manager of a theater for one of the greatest actors of the period, Sir Henry Irving. You get this idea that he's just spinning a wild Irish yarn and putting a cast of thousands on the stage. By the way, Irving said that Dracula was rubbish. It's just, it's so much fun, but it's also, it's a mixture of unintentional hilarity and terrifying moments. I find that I laugh through Dracula and then I get creeped out. There was a famous um, response, I don't remember if it was in The Spectator, in one of the, some periodical, where someone said, you know, you're going to laugh at this, it's outrageous, it's in pieces, but I defy you to read it late at night. You'll look for spiritual consolation and, you know, pull your shirt up, cover your neck a little bit and make sure that you're not going to get ass assaulted. So even as you're laughing, you're it's going to creep you out and get under your skin because it's just outrageous but just brilliant at the same time. Oh, I can't wait to read it because that's that same friend that gave the glowing review to your book, Dracula, is one of her favorite books. And she was telling me, oh, you've got to read it. I'm like, but I didn't I didn't like Frankenstein. She's like, neither do I. Yeah. It's okay. Read Dracula instead. Yeah. And so. Do it, do it. And I think it shows what a powerful piece of literature it is that it can give you this rush of contradictory emotions mm -hmm. all at once. And the impact that it seems to have on the people who've read it, and even the lore around it has impacted those of us who haven't read it yet. Yeah, it's very interesting. Now, knowing what impact Dracula had on you, what impact are you hoping that your literature has on your readers? Well, this is, it's an interesting question. It takes me back to you know, classical questions about what is the purpose of literature? What is the purpose of art? You know, Plato, Aristotle, they all, you know, argued about it a little bit. Is it supposed to instruct? Is it supposed to edify? Is it supposed to delight? I want it all. I would love to have, you know, elements of my novels that spark interesting ideas and interesting conversation. I would like them to say something true about what it is to be human. But I also really would like it to be fun, delightful because I like to be delighted there. I went through a period where I was reading all the capital S significant texts. I did. I printed off a list and I read and read and read and read. That was my high school. It's not that I reached saturation on things significant, but I found that I was more deeply moved by significant things. If they also gave me joy, that didn't mean 
a happy clinch at the end, although that was one of my major issues with Great Expectations, although a clinch just wouldn't work. It just wouldn't work uh, in that novel. Um, and maybe that's, it's more that it wouldn't have worked that made me upset. I want a sense that the, it's that redemptive arc I was talking about. I want that redemptive arc. And so I'd like my books in the midst of edifying to ha to say something true, to say something beautiful about what it is to be human and our desire for redemption. And in that, just to bring all of the uh, transcendent ideas of true, the good, the beautiful, goodness, I think if I can express goodness in my novels, I will be achieving something as a writer that is very, very hard. Um, it's a lot easier to depict evil and make it dramatic and interesting. But I think goodness, conveying goodness in a way that it's not obnoxious, preachy, dull, it just, it's very, very challenging to do. And I think very few authors are able to carry it off or bother to. I think Dickens does, but the way he does it is by embracing the humor and being a little bit ridiculous and over the top. That's what P.G. Woodhouse does. Jane Austen conveys goodness. Tolkien conveys goodness. It's so these are many of my heroes. And in my novels, if I can express goodness in a way that's not cloying, that will give me a great deal of satisfaction as a writer. I think you do accomplish that, looking at some of the characters from the book, from Brother Wolf. And the thing that I like about it, and I don't want to give away spoilers and things like that, but I have to say the way that you show goodness is in this very approachable way, that the characters who are good are not necessarily perfectly attractive, both in their personalities and in their appearance. And yet it shows that there is something deeper beyond that that they are good. And I think that it almost makes that goodness more approachable for the reader, because if all of the characters who are portrayed as good are Fabio and Barbie and et cetera, et cetera, down the line, then where's the hope for the rest of us? That's true. That's true. And it's one of the reasons why, as a Victorianist, you have these, and Dickens says it too, these angel in a house females who are so perfect. I have a deep love for them, but I couldn't write them and I wouldn't necessarily want to be friends with them. And I would have a very hard time admitting to my own sins and foibles and awkwardnesses next to someone like that. I have to be able to be comfortable with my characters, which by the way, it's extremely flattering. I'm so pleased that you think that the goodness is that comes across. You know, when I get down to it, I think that I know there's the problem of evil. I recognize that. But I think most people... Are, have more of a problem with the good and believing and trusting in the good because we live with ourselves and we're pretty monstrous. So why wouldn't we believe in monsters? That's a really apt point. Truly believing in the good is more challenging. And trusting that the good, that the good has our back and that good, that God in the end, that God has our back. And why would God love us? It, I mean, I live inside me. <laughs> It's, yeah, hard to see ourselves as lovable, but trusting that he loves us, not because we're lovable, but because he is good. It, it gets you through a lot, gets us through uh, even things like um, children and never sleeping and all the foibles of motherhood that we discussed before we hit record. <laughs> all the challenges and joys. Speaking of never sleeping, I have a question about Athena and Brother Wolf. 
this might seem like a weird question to you, but does she have narcolepsy? You know, that's an interesting question. I, I would think, I do not think she actually does, but I think that her exhausted ability to fall asleep um, at times when falling asleep is problematic um, and leads her into dark dreams or encounters with dark, threatening things. I think that that is one of the symptoms of, let's call it familial nearness to the occult. So if you have a family and your family tangos with demons, you're likely going to have things like curses, weaknesses, radical predispositions towards things that you really don't want to get close to. So Athena is not, this is not giving anything away. It's pretty clear in the first chapter. She is not sustained, defended, or properly supported by her father. And in the spiritual realm, the authority of a father is critical. So if he is a failed father, she is in danger from the word go. And I think her falling asleep at certain moments is symptomatic of that. I just had to ask because it's not just the falling asleep. I don't know if you're aware of this, but narcolepsy along with it comes nightmares at night Mm. and insomnia at night, like severe nightmares. And the other thing that goes with it is you can have hallucinations when you're falling asleep and when you're waking up and have sleep paralysis where you can't get up. And so I'm reading this and I'm like, I have to ask her, does she have narcolepsy or is it just something else? That was not deliberate, but I love the ambiguity. I love the ambiguity because that's one of the scarier things in a Gothic novel is, can this be explained by something physiological or is it something worse? So actually, I'm going to embrace the ambiguity and say, I don't know. Maybe she's narcoleptic. Maybe she's not. So yeah, no, I'm going to I'm going to run with that. Well, and it could be both. Exactly. It, it could be both that these could be hallucinations that are also a spiritual encounter because it doesn't seem as if she's actually like physically present. Anyway, we we're going to give spoilers if we don't stop. But I, I no, I, I but I think you I I think you've made a very important point and it was there was another scene and I won't go into that one because when my husband read it, yes, my husband only reads my books after they're published. In any case, he um, when he read this one scene, he came to me and he said, was that preternatural or was that a natural occurrence or an occurrence by an accident? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, it could be both because why wouldn't evil work through natural means whenever it can? So it's sort of like, why wouldn't the devil just sort of pour a little gasoline on a radical predisposition towards sin or say you have an alcoholic why wouldn't the devil just help the alcoholic on his way and until he you know dies this is something father thomas edmund gilroy says many times in bloody habit and i'm pretty sure he says it in brother wolf as well satan doesn't want to do something dramatic because if you do something too dramatic, people might wake up and say, hold the phone. Evil is real. Maybe I need God. Instead, why not just help man on his merry way to destroy himself? So yeah, I think you can embrace the ambiguity and say evil operates both ways and wherever it can, it just 
adds more pitfalls to the path you're already on. It's all just so saucy. (laughs) I, I really enjoyed this book. Obviously, I've shown my ignorance as far as the horror uh, genre is concerned up to this point. And so I was surprised how into this book and how beautiful this genre could be. I was like, I didn't know that horror and beauty could be coexisting in a book. But I think a lot of it gets to what you were talking about when you read us the Dickens passage in that the way that you write within this genre isn't meant to be as livid and graphic and disturbing as possible. That violence is used as a tool to express deeper meaning in the story, it seems. Oh, I I definitely hope so. And it's one of the reasons that even the classification horror, it feels, I understand it, but I tend to say gothic instead, which is more, it's older to say, oh no, let's go back a hundred years. Because when I think horror, I think of slasher films and movies I can't stomach and books that I wouldn't read um, because they become a little bit nihilistic and violence for violence's sake. And they alarm me and they, yes, they unsettle me, not in a way that is me being, you know, scraped a little raw so that I can look more deeply into myself, but just making me sick to my stomach. My husband can handle more grit than I can. And I just, I can't, I can't, I, even some old noir movies, I can't handle because I say, all right, that's just a little bit too, too gritty, too gritty for me. But in the Gothic, as it emerged, it was really, it was many things, but it was in part a reaction to the Enlightenment. So you had this hyper-rational, you know, the natural world is all it is, you know, just scientific reason approach to reality. And then you had these writers coming out and saying, no, there's something else. And they start reaching for that something else, which of course is metaphysics and the spiritual world and everything that was thrown out by this period anyway. So they're reaching in the right direction, but don't quite make it to the beauty of the rejected understanding of the world and of who we are in reference to God, but they sort of get halfway there. So that's where I think there's a real possibility for beauty in reaction to that with that early Gothic uh, tradition. And Dickens also, he dabbles in the Gothic all over the place. Christmas Carol is a Gothic novel or novella. It's a, it's very Gothic. But like I said, horror today. Yeah. Yeah. I got to be able to sleep. I mean, when the children let me. (laughs) So how do you think we fell off that cliff from what the Gothic genre has to offer into what modernly would be called horror? I think it's, I think that, well, the way that the genre sort of, it started bifurcating all over the place. The mystery genre came out of this um, in part um, because you've got the Gothic atmospherics all over, say, Sherlock Holmes. But it's rational, it's rational, but you've got the atmosphere. The sensation novel, same thing. It comes, but here, all the weirdness has to be explained away by some psychological or social reasoning. But as so things are sort of spawning, genres are going this way and that, by the time you get to the 20th century, they threw out the moral understanding for most Gothic works. And if you look at say, vampire novels in the last 50 years. It's an embrace of the evil as the, um, the tran- 
the vampire is the transgressive outsider. And we just don't understand him. Not a sense of we're being assaulted by evil. Let's fight it. I mean, that's also drawing way back on the high romantics because they were screwing in the head anyway and saw Satan as heroic in many ways. As we've gotten further and further and further away from that Christian moral understanding, we've gotten fixated on the monstrousness. And whether we're talking about actual monsters in a, in a horror film, or if we're talking about those slasher movies that I can't watch, it's monstrousness, focus on perversion. There's no hope. We threw out the hope because we threw out the moral understanding. Mm. I think that kind of hits the nail on the head with a lot of literature this these days is a lack of hope. Yeah. This kind of promotion of nihilism as you were talking about. And I think it shows in how our culture is experiencing life in society right now, just with this lack of hope. Maybe that's what people are looking for when they're looking to good fiction. I think so. I think good fiction gives you a lens to understand what's in front of you. And it's one of the reasons I love the Gothic and teaching the Gothic, say to high schoolers. And I have a lot of Catholic parents who say, you know, I don't want my child reading Dracula. Isn't it about evil and demons? And I say, well, yes, but give them the tools, you know, counterbalance it with read Jane Austen and learn about goodness, but also understand how to fight evil and give them the tools and the appreciation for that redemptive art in a healthy way because these other books will speak to most books today they'll speak to disorientation they'll speak to the feeling of fatherlessness and not relating to the world not relating to the people around you it's very lonely you're very isolated and so many of the books today uh which i will admit i rarely read i'm very very selective um, about what I read that comes out today and tend towards good Catholic fiction or someone like Tim Powers, who is a Catholic novelist who actually writes in the mainstream and writes outrageous and brilliant uh, supernatural thrillers. Those other books, it's just one tormented soul's very boring struggle for identity and he or she makes it. And then it's another tormented soul's desire to make it and he or she doesn't it just really it feels navel gazing to me and it's boring i'd rather have a cast of thousands i'd rather have a dickens character run down by a train i'd rather you know something because i will be able to (laughs) (laughs) i'll be able to glean something and take it back into my thankfully humdrum little life and be edified and be able to laugh when my toddler takes off his diaper and paints the wall with its contents or um or more happily when my children are reading great literature and having deep feelings about the characters it just like oh this is joy and we can relate and we can talk about this and it's not angsty boring self-examination that's not really self-examination because if you stare at yourself long enough your you know your eyes are going to cross you're not going to be able to see anything Well, and the other thing about it is it shows how shallow it is, like we were discussing about your experience when you read Dracula, that you have all of these feelings simultaneously and that you're pulled in a bunch of different ways and your brain and and your psyche and everything, your your world is stretching. Mm -hmm. Whereas if 
the books that people are reading are entirely self-centered, they're experiencing one dull emotion, the loneliness, the angst, the things like that. They're not pulled in fear or growth or humor. And I mean, how long could you read stuff like that, really? It's just mind-numbing. I wish I had. I don't. I should have brought it with me. I should always have it for an interview. C.S. Lewis's Experiment in Criticism which really blew my mind. I stumbled on it a couple of years ago, but the final quote he talks about when he reads, he sees with myriad eyes, he experiences so many different realities and becomes more completely himself. It's just beautiful. I don't read to look in a mirror, unless it's a funhouse mirror in the Gothic when I say, ah, which is, I, I think the point, one of the points in the Gothic is that, the character and hopefully the reader encounters the preternatural other in the entire world monstrousness is before him but it's supposed to provoke some degree of inward looking where you recognize your own monstrousness and grow towards redemption i want all the trappings i want the other characters i want the the i want the full panoply of the world i don't want just Eleanor Borg Nicholson 24-7. I live with Eleanor Borg Nicholson 24-7 and, you know, I love myself and think I'm grand, but I'm not that interesting. <laughs> Certainly not that interesting to me. <laughs> oh, what a fantastic reflection on that. Is there anything that you do to help yourself along with the creative process that really gets you going when you're writing these novels, other than being in the throes of long, long pregnancy? <laughs> You know what I do um, is when I'm writing, I turn to my first and my most dedicated reader, who's my mother, and I'm constantly handing her things saying, here, read this paragraph and get excited and talk to me about it. My mother and my baby brother, they're my first readers for everything. And it's bouncing them off, bouncing ideas off them with Brother Wolf. I should have said it wasn't just my baby brother who said there's too much angst. They actually staged an intervention on me. They arrived at my house late at night walked in, sat down and said, we have got to talk about the first 10 chapters because there's a serious problem here. And it makes me so excited. And oh my gosh. <laughs> it makes me so happy because then I go, you care about these characters. I've made something real. And then I have moments of, what do you mean I'm not perfect? And then we go in the creative process and the debate and the conversation and the no, you need to go deeper and no, there's a problem here. And this character makes no sense. It grows in this sort of, um, in this conversation, in this uh, you know, three-way dialogue. And my mother even said, we've been talking about talking to you about this. And we finally reached the point where we just had to stop you because you're ruining Athena. And we're really mad about it. Literature lives. I live and breathe literature. And I look forward to the day when my children are a little older and my eldest will be brave enough to read my books. Um, she's only nine. Um, and I wouldn't let her read Dracula yet, so she can't read my books either. But she, uh, because she'll come and say, Mommy, on your in your book, have you thought about doing this? I say, well, no, I haven't, but let's talk about it. It's a family project. It's how, probably how they put up with me when I get into the throes of character development. Sleep-deprived character development. It's alarming. That is just such a beautiful image of the community that's coming around you to make th this creative work. Thank you so much for sharing that image with me. I, I love fostering that creativity in kids, like what you're talking about. 
and seeing where their ideas are going. And I know my oldest is almost eight, will be eight when this show airs. And she told me she wants to write a novel too. I'm like, go for it, honey. We'll go to the dollar store. We'll get you a little notebook. And absolutely, you write your novel. In a way, you know, you were talking about, you know, getting rid of the dross of what your writing was when you were a child. But at the same token, would you be where you are today without those years and years of experience writing and getting better? Certainly not. Certainly not. And, you know, when I teach, I tell my students, in, even with literary critical papers, I, for years, threw out or revised 70% of what I wrote. Being willing to grow from what you've written and to write something and go, this isn't it, and set it aside, this isn't it, and, set, and just keep writing, 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 is it's a reminder that as awesome as it is when a book is in print, and it is awesome, it's so much fun, it's such a trip, that can't be why I write, because that would be depressing. Um, but also, it would it's just, I write because it's a way that I find myself expressing things, telling stories that are in my head. And that the most fulfilling thing is if, for example, your daughter writes her novel and she shares it with you. That's what's exciting. Right before I came down for this interview, uh, our eldest was following me saying, well, I wrote a story for daddy to read at bedtime to the others. Well, she got it. We're, we're those dweeby parents. She got a typewriter for her birthday. Um, so she typed it meticulously out. And I kept walking past and saying, don't point and peck. You put your fingers properly um, so that she would. It's, <laughs> it's this awesome little clickety click, 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 ding. Anyway, so I can always tell when she's when she's writing. And then her following me, reading it to me aloud. Because those those are also the pieces, my daughter, your daughter, they will have a greater appreciation for the stories they read because they're figuring out how a story works. They're figuring out how characters come together. And all of those literary critical elements are going to make them see and read and live more deeply in so many aspects of their life, which is why I will stand by literature classes um, as essential for the formation of balanced young people. It's just, yes, literature, it has, it has a practical value along with math and should not be skipped over. I agree 100% that I think it's hard to... It develop virtue in the absence of story. Yes. Yes. You know, I, I have a friend who in gra we were in graduate school together and she had me come into her class and talk to her students so they could meet an author. I was talking about it and then I said, well, let me just ask, how many of you want to be writers? Not a single one. And I said, okay, how many of you are into sports? Every hand goes up. And I said, oh, okay, we'll use this as our analogy. How will you perform on the field if you don't train? How will you perform on the field if all you do is eat donuts the night before? How will you perform on the field if you don't sleep the night before? Well, if you think you can do well, or you realize you can't do well in your sports without training and proper discipline and proper diet, how on earth do you think you are going to write a paper for your teacher without any practice whatsoever, without working at your craft, without reading, do you really think you're going to produce something and that your teacher won't know that you didn't do any preparation for it? Same thing. You, training, reading, proper diet uh, is what produces good writers. And then one girl said, actually, I do want to be a writer. And I said, thank you, shy girl in the back, for being brave. Mm-hmm. 
and it's hard to admit, but embracing something that doesn't have a bunch of perceived power. It likely will not earn you a lot of money or notoriety or any of these things to admit in front of a group, especially when you're the shy, nerdy kid in the back that probably wears glasses. That was me in the back of the room. To admit that you want to forge this path that has no hope of success. You are on the quest with the one ring to Mount Doom. Uh, yeah. And yet you are on the quest. Yeah. And when will people tell the stories of Samwise the Brave? Exactly. No, it's a great analogy. And so this year, for in addition to a typewriter, our eldest received the full Lord of the Rings as an audiobook, but also in print. And uh, I told her for years, you're not old enough, you're not old enough. So this was a big deal. And her birthday was a month before her sister was born. And I said, all right, we're gonna, you and I in the evenings will slowly make our way through. We made it through the whole thing. And the baby was born. Um, So we were just binge listening because (laughs) I was too pregnant to do anything else. But the depth of her emotional response and being there with her and watching her go through stages of grief and joy, which I'm hearing on this I'm hearing grief and joy. It's okay. We were talking about Lord of the Rings. Oh, uh, her deep emotional responses. So we are a spoiler-free household, and there were some moments in that novel that just brought her to her knees. And it was right after we'd had a uh, a bereavement in the family. So we were exploring grief. We were exploring consolation in the face of grief. We were it was beautiful and enriching, and I was far too pregnant to be having those sorts of conversations, but we we did it. It was um, remarkable when you share literature. Yikes, and- that's like a whole rosary. We are a big read aloud family as well, and we actually, even though my kids wouldn't reach the age limit you're looking for, we read the entire Lord of the Rings. We read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings to our girls aloud, and they were just in love with it. They were absolutely in love with it. And the things that they learned from those books and the characters that they fell in love with just means so much. And I know that uh, the story where we had kind of a bereavement type of situation that was reflected in literature is when we were reading all of the Little House books. And there is the loss of a pet in the Little House books. And it was right at the time where we were having to decide to put down our 15-year-old kitty who was very sick, working through that whole relationship to literature (laughs) was hard, but it's also kind of cathartic because then you realize that this grief, you're not alone in it, even if it's fictional characters. Great works of literature also give our children the reassurance that there are tools that they can bring to bear in the face of grief joy, the whole gamut of human emotions, that they can negotiate it towards heroic victory, which uh, often looks like the cross, but still they'll learn how to recognize it. There's a reason our Lord speaks to us in parables. We, We respond to stories because they teach us and guide us because life is hard and we need, we need narrative to have it make sense and how to get through from the beginning of the story to the end. What work do you com- have coming up in the future? Well, I am playing with uh, early, early, early bits for another gothic thriller following Bloody Habit and Brother Wolf. 
I've also been uh, overhauling an old manuscript, which is a murder mystery, um, to see if I can get that. It's a completed manuscript, but it needed radical transformation. Um, so I've been trying my hand at that. I say I'm trying my hand at that, but you know, it comes and fits and starts. There are five small children in this in this house, and I teach and homeschool. The story comes when it comes. I can I there are voices for new stories in my head and just letting them continue to grow and then the plot will come together and then I'll say, Oh wow, this is what this story's about. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful experience when it's happening and like most authors I try not to panic when when I have not had enough sleep or coffee for it to happen. So and be patient. Be patient with the creative process. I don't know how there's enough of either one of those things. <laughs> <laughs> ever, ever. Uh, yeah, coffee. You know, there's a story. I love to tell the story about Anthony Trollope, who was so prolific that he had, he paid a servant extra every year specifically to awaken him at 5 a.m. and bring him a cup of hot coffee. And then he would get up and he would write, I think it was 2,000 or 2,500 words. And then he would go to his day job. He worked for the post office. <laughs> and then he would, so, but every day he would get up, get his cup of coffee from his nice servant. And then he would go write his, his chunk of text. And then he'd go to work. That sounds inspirational in the servant with the coffee, the 5 a.m., not so much. <laughs> but I think I would like to have some fun with our random round, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. And with that, I roll percentile dice to ask some of my 100 over-caffeinated questions. So your choice of dice are pink with aqua sparkles or swirly tie-dye. Let's do swirly tie-dye. I kind of figured it was a little more dark and brooding. <laughs> so let's see. We've got 38. How do you think the world is going to look in five years? Oh, mercy on us. Hmm. Actually, here, here, I'm a cockeyed optimist like Dickens. I think it's going to have a greater degree of stability in things like travel, in uh, access to many of the things that we have not been able to access in the last, you know, couple of years. Um, mostly, I am thinking this selfishly because in five years, even though there's a strong chance given our pattern that I will have another child or I don't know, I'm getting up there um, in age, but that it will be stable enough so I can go to England again and take a couple, if not all the children. So I'm going to say in five years, it's going to be stable enough for me to travel. That's how stable it's going to be. And it's going to be beautiful. And my I'm going to live in more than a thousand square feet. This is what the world is going to look like in five years. It'll be beautiful. I might even have completed another book by then. It will be a time of great hope. Don't ask my husband that question because his answer will not be optimistic. He's a frustrated idealist. That's what he is. He's a frustrated idealist. Well, it sounds like you can still be good foils to each other, that you can end up on the same side, even if he's a little grumpy getting there. He'll just say, don't read so much Dickens. And I'll say, you don't have a soul, but I love you. <laughs> let's see what we come up with next 35 we're hitting the 30s today apparently what are you known for i can dance the fully choreographed michael jackson's thriller this is yeah wow yeah my cousins and i we get out on the dance floor at family weddings i'm the one in front 
And I've trained our eldest daughter so she can do it too. I feel like this should go on a resume someplace. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely front and center. Well, and here's the thing is how apropos that you write gothic thriller. Exactly. I mean, it just it it had to be. It had to be. Um, little harder to do when at the at family weddings when I'm pregnant, but I have done that too. I bet that makes for some epic pictures. It really does. It really does. Actually, our second, we had a family dance party at New Year's with all my cousins. I might have brought on labor. Not from thriller. I think it was gangnam style. <laughs> Yeah, it was Gangnam style. Yep. That is so awesome. It was, yeah. So. Well, and that gives us a time frame of when this occurred as well. Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, Let's see what we come up with question-wise now. 56. You can have coffee with any historical figure, fictional or non-fictional. Who do you pick? Oh, shoot. Um I would probably pick Charles Dickens and then I would regret my decision and say, can I change that and be Jane Austen? And then I'd say, well, maybe Shakespeare or actually, no. So I'd get myself all in a tangle and then I would cry. Actually, I scrap all that because I'd love to see all of them. I would sit down with a little known Catholic novelist named Mrs. Wilford Ward. I would sit with Josephine Ward. Her first name was Josephine um, because she was a novelist a Catholic, a, a, the child of recusant Catholics. Um, so they'd remain Catholic after the Reformation. And she was a mother. I would just love to sit with her and have a cup of coffee or tea. That's who I, that's who I'd sit down with. Oh, now that I'll have to look her up. She sounds fascinating. The last question I ask all of my guests is what gives you hope right now? Well, setting aside the big answer, which would of course be God, it is, I, I love all my children. They're wonderful. They're such a blessing. At the moment, our youngest, who is seven months old, has the most unshakable cheerfulness I've ever seen, even after four other very happy babies. And that little baby's smile, even when she does things like tries to stand up and falls over and hits her head, which is what we do all day, every day right now, try, always trying to catch her. Through her tears, she'll look at me and smile. And it's that through the tears, her, uh, even when she's sick, you can s tell that this infant is looking at her siblings and she's got a, come on guys, keep your spirits up attitude. She is a little, a light, little shining light of hope and a reminder to me when I'm, you know, being the average mom and wanting to pull my hair out. Maybe not the average mom. We're going to pretend average mom, not subpar mom when you're just, you know, losing your mind. So. An infant who seems wiser than I am, she gives me hope. That's such a beautiful image. And I thank you so much for sharing this time with us and uh, knowledge of your dance skills. It's an inspiration <laughs> to us all. Uh, yeah, things that someday, would I do it in public for money? I mean, aside from family. Depends how money, how much money, actually. True story. And then I would use... <laughs> I use the money to build a beautiful library with built-in bookcases and the ladder. You know the Henry Higgins ladder, the one that moves on the yeah. Do I know the ladder? Everyone knows the ladder. I would dance thriller in public for the enough money to build that library with the ladder. <laughs> I have very high goals in life here. I love it. I love it. I've really enjoyed our time together and I hope that in the future, when you have some of your new works out, we can get together again and chat. 
That would be lovely. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been a, it's been a delight. It has. Thank you, Eleanor. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, click on the follow button for more tales every other Tuesday. And in the meantime, read stories that matter because you are living one.